1921, a doctor named Evan Kane first proposed the idea of performing surgery only using a local anesthetic. You see, up until that time, every surgery, no matter how minor, how small, had always done by, been done by putting the person completely out. But of course, there were lots of risks with that, and Evan Kane thought there were a lot of unnecessary risks associated with that. So he went to the New York Medical Board following the proper procedure and asked for permission to try the local anesthetic. Uh, the medical board gave him permission under one condition, and that is that he had to find the patient. So he searched for a patient willing to try this surgery with using only a local, and he eventually found one. On the day that he walked into the operating room, he had the mask, the gloves, the whole deal. He walked in, and it was filled with other doctors. You see, they all wanted to come and see this surgery performed to see if it really worked, to see what it would be like. Well, using only a local anesthetic, Evan Kane made the incision, peeled back the skin, took out the appendix, and everything went perfectly, a perfect appendectomy. He then sewed the patient back up, and when he had finished, the room of doctors breaks out in applause. It was 1921, Evan Kane was the doctor, and Evan Kane was the patient. See, he had performed uh, self-surgery. If I understand it right, the world's first self-surgery. Now you might not have the stomach to perform self-surgery on your body, but if you're a Christian, you need to learn how to perform self-surgery on your soul. You see, what we need to learn to do is to peel back the layers of our life to take a deeper look inside, to see things from a perspective that you can't see from the outside. Of course, we don't need to do self-surgery on our appendix, we need to do self-surgery on our heart. The Bible says that man looks at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. Man looks at the outer appearance, but God looks at the heart. And we need to do self-surgery to peel back the layers, to look inside of what's going on in our heart. Because just like the heart is vital to our physical life, it's also vital to our spiritual life. You know, nobody goes to the doctor for, say, a shoulder pain, and, and, and then the doctor tells them, hey, you know what, don't worry about the shoulder, it's really a heart condition. And they go, oh, good, no problem. You know, when you find out physically that it's your heart that's involved, you know intuitively, instinctively, based on experience, that this is more serious than I thought. Well, the same is true in our spiritual life. And so today, Jesus with his words, does surgery. Or, or you might say it this way, using Jesus' word and under his supervision, we do self-surgery to examine and encourage and convict our own heart. Turn your Bible to Mark chapter 12. Mark 12. Right now we are in the final week of Jesus' life. He's standing uh, in Jerusalem and he is being bombarded with questions. The last few weeks we've seen as we've gone through the Gospel of Mark that they're asking questions about where does Jesus get the authority to teach the things he does. They ask him questions about well, who should you pay taxes to? Like should you pay taxes to Caesar? Because they're trying to get him in trouble with the Roman government. They've asked him theological questions, questions about marriage and the resurrection. But all these questions are designed to trip him up, to trap him, to expose him, to somehow to discredit his ministry. But as they're standing around, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, as they're standing around asking these questions, one of them 
almost kind of go, wow, this is impressive. He's doing pretty well, better than I thought. Maybe I'll ask him a question we really want to know the answer to. That's where we pick up, Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no one but him. To love him with all your heart and all your understanding and all your strength. To love your neighbor yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. All the Old Testament experts said there are about 613 commandments in the Old Testament. 365 of them were negative prohibitions, prohibiting you from doing some activity. And about 248 were positive commands, telling you what you should do. So with 613 commandments, you won't be surprised to know that this question about which is the most important commandment was one that was asked of a lot of teachers. Jesus wasn't the first person to hear this question. Any teacher of any kind of repute would be asked, Hey, teacher, what do you think is the most important one? Can you, can you take the Torah and condense it down? What is it in a nutshell? And there was all kinds of answers. Some people said that it was the, the sacrificial laws that were most important. Some people said the civil laws. Some people said, some of the teachers said, well, you can tell the most important commandments by the ones who have the greatest punishment if violated. So this guy comes to Jesus, knowing that all these teachers are answering this question, and he said, we'll give it to you, Jesus. What do you think is the greatest commandment? And it's interesting that when Jesus got that question, he opened the Bible. See, Jesus responds by quoting Scripture. Now, just a quick time out. I wonder if when we have questions, if we follow Jesus' pattern and turn to the Scriptures. When we have questions about how we spend our time, or questions about relationship, or when we expose the sin of our heart and see anger or pride, or, or jealousy or gossip, do we turn to the scriptures? When we have questions about dating, when we have questions about God's will, do we open up the scriptures? Because I think Jesus is modeling something, that the answers to our life's problems are found in the scripture. And until we look there, we will always be searching in vain. So Jesus turns to the Bible. And when he turns to the Bible, he turns to Deuteronomy 6, where he quotes something that was called the Shema. The Shema. See, the Shema was found in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. And it's just what Jesus has said here. The Lord is God. The Lord is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That Shema, those verses, that saying, was said twice a day by pious Jews. They would start their morning... And in their day, by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And yet, they didn't get it. They quoted it over and over and over. They were so familiar with it, they were blind to it. 
They didn't get its significance or its weight. Yes, they said it twice a day. Yes, they got the religious custom down, but they didn't see the importance behind the custom. I wonder if there might be situations in our life where we are familiar with God's truth, but it hasn't made the kind of impact in our life that it should. Now think of how all the ways Jesus could have expanded, responded to this commandment or this question. What's the greatest commandment? He could have said to serve God. He could have said to obey God. He could have said to fear God. But he doesn't. Instead, what God says is the greatest commandment is to love God. Why love? And then at the end, this scribe, after hearing what Jesus has said, he says to Jesus, you've spoken well, you got it right. Loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength is more important, he says, than burnt offering and sacrifices. And when Jesus hears him get it right, that loving God is of, of supreme importance, he commends him. Jesus commends the scribe and says, you got it right. Now why? Why is it that love is the issue? See, Jesus doesn't just want your actions or your behavior or your words or your values. Jesus wants your heart. Because he knows that when he has your heart, he has all of you. And when we look at these verses in Mark 12, I think the best thing we can do is just ask questions of it. Whenever you're reading your Bible, if you get up in the morning, and I hope it is your habit to open your Bible and read it, the best thing you can do to understand what it's saying to you is just start to ask questions. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to ask this text questions. And the question we're going to ask first is, it seems the most obvious one. Why is loving God the greatest commandment? And I think the answer to that question is because God is most worthy of our love. See, everyone this morning, everyone here this morning, everyone in human history, every human being is made in the image of God. And that means that you and I were created with the capacity to love things. And so if you made a list of all the things you love, some would be serious, like I, I love certain people in my life. And, and some would be a little bit less serious. You know, I, I love dessert, or I love pets, or I love my hobbies, or I love shopping. All those are well and good. They really are. All the things that you love, or most of the things that you love, are, are probably good things. But if you have spent your love on those things and have not loved God, then you have loved superficially. If you've loved other things but not loved God, then you have set your heart on superficial things. See, the, the reason this is the greatest commandment is not because it calls us to love. Love, that's what God wants us to do. No, 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 no. Love God. It is the object of our love that makes this great. Let me try in a whole different area to, 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 to explain this. A whole different arena. Okay, some people, maybe even you, have, have expressed an objection to Christianity that goes something like this. It seems unjust or unfair or it seems just out of proportion for God to consign us who don't believe in Christ to eternal judgment for sin. I mean, sin is small, it's temporary, it's quick. And then we get eternal judgment for that? It just seems like that seems out of proportion. But here's how you might think about it. If you're a student in school and you punch another student, what happens to you? Well, you get detention. 
So on the way to detention, let's say you punch a teacher. What happens now? Well, you get suspended. Let's say on the way home, you punch a police officer. What happens? Well, you go to jail. Let's say that same student, older in life, is standing uh, near where the president's walking by and he takes a, a, a lunge, a step, and tries to punch the president. What happens? Well, he's shot dead. It's the same thing. You punch somebody. But completely different consequences because it's not what you did, it's who you did against. So when you punch God, when you sin against God, what do you get? Eternal judgment because you've sinned against an eternal God who you owe your life to. Sin against, a te- uh, sin against another student, you get detention. Sin against a teacher, and you get uh, suspension. Punch a police officer, you go to jail. Punch a president, you're shot dead. Punch God, eternal judgment. It's the object. It's the one you're sinning against that determines the greatness or the, mag- the, 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 the greatness of the sin. And so here is with love. It is not that this is calling us to love. It is calling us to love the one who is most worthy of our love, but to love God. See, God is unparalleled and unprecedented. The Bible asks the question, who is like God? And the answer always comes back, no one is like him. Exodus 15, who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? No one is like God. Psalm 71, your righteousness, God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, who is like you, God? No one. Micah 7, 18, who is a God like you? Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Who is like God? No one is like God. So when you begin to grasp, when you begin to comprehend, when you begin to see with your eyes the greatness and the worth and the value and the supremacy of God, and then you start to compare Him with all the other things that you love in your life, maybe you start growing in the conviction like I do that perhaps I've spent my love on superficial things. If I have loved things but not loved God, then I am a fool, for God is most worthy of our love. But what's the next question I want to know from this? I want to know how do I love God? If I'm supposed to love God, how do I do it? If he's most worthy of my love, what does it look like for me to love him in my heart? What Jesus says to answer that question is love him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, it's not like Jesus says there are four different parts of you. There's your heart, there's your soul, your mind, and your strength. And love him with all these. No, no, no. What he's doing is he's saying, look, this is love him with the totality of your being. He stacks these words that, that have a lot of overlap. He stacks them one on top of the other. Love God with your heart. Love him with your soul. Love him with your mind. Love him with your strength. What's it mean to love God with our heart? 
Well, our heart is the core of our being. It's who we are. Proverbs 4.23 says, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. What it's saying is that like a spring of water, your heart overflows into everything you do. Your heart overflows into your words and into your actions and into your values and into your money and into your time and into your work and your school. It just flows out of you. It can't help it. It's like this horrible storm that devastated much of the Northeast, this storm Sandy. And and the water just flowed in places that they didn't want it to go, into subways, into homes. Well, that's how our heart always is. Our heart is always flowing out, always revealing who we really, really are. Bill Bright, the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, years ago, was trying to explain part of the Christian life to somebody. And what he did is he just drew a circle. And he said, this represents, this circle represents a person's life. And then inside the circle, he drew a little chair. And he said, this is the throne of that person's life. This is where the decisions and the values, this is where life is lived. Somebody is sitting on that throne, he said. It's either you or Jesus. That throne is our heart. That's where God wants us to love him from. Love him with your heart and love him with your soul. I think soul here includes our emotions. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane before he goes to the cross, he prays and he says, my soul is deeply grieved. In Psalm 103, the psalmist says, praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise him, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. And then he says, forget none of his benefits. And he starts listing out what God has done for him. And you get the idea that the list could go on and on, but he's got to stop somewhere. He said, he forgives all my sins. He heals all my diseases. He redeems my life from the pit. He crowns me with love and compassion. He satisfies my desires with good things. But what he's doing there is he's preaching to himself. He's talking to himself. He's talking to his soul. And he's saying, soul, don't just know these things, but feel them, have a deep sense of them, of all that God has done for you. The longest distance often in our life is the distance between our head and our heart. And so if you have not felt great sadness over sin, if you don't feel great passion to do God's will in your life, if there's not a sense of joy in his word, or almost getting choked up with tears when you think how good God has been to you, then you're not loving God with your soul. Love God with your heart. Love God with your soul. Love God with your mind. In other words, love God with your intellect. The more knowledge you have about God, the more your heart is able to respond in love to him. You see, sometimes that isn't in vogue today. People want to, to, to experience God, but not think hard about God. And so sometimes, some people come to church expecting entertainment, a, a show. They, they, they want to see something, you know. They, they want it to be easy. Some churches out there even subscribe to the theory that the less you teach, the more you'll reach. The less content you teach, the less Bible, the less hard things you have to think about, the more people you'll reach. I'm not so sure that's right. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity, 
And God is no fonder of intellectual slackers than of any other kind of slacker. If you are thinking of becoming a Christian, I warn you that you're embarking on something which is going to take the whole of you, brains and all. Pretty common question that I get, I'm sure the other pastors do too, is is how do I kindle my relationship with God? A woman came in not too long ago and said, "I, I, I don't have the kind of walk and the kind of relationship with God I want. What do you do? What's your advice? See, I think a lot of people are caught in that. But the advice for that, the, the, the biblical instruction for that, isn't, you know, fun and sexy. It's, it's, well, to develop a mind that thinks deep thoughts about God. To think hard about who God is and how he's at work in your life and what his will is. See, a lot of times we want the experience, we want the feeling, but we don't want to do what God calls us to do because, see, God works through our mind. So we want the experience, but we don't want to study. We want the feelings, but we don't want to take notes. We don't want to bring our Bible. We don't want to show up in a class. We don't want to dig in. We don't want to work hard. We just want the experience. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way you got to dig in, you got to study, because that's how God reaches us. And so then sometimes you see the same person who doesn't want to dig in and study and work hard and take notes and sit in the classes and do all that. Then tragedy and difficulty and trial comes, and they're overwhelmed by it. I don't want to minimize how hard it is for any person, Christian or not, mature or not, to go through difficult trials. It is very difficult, painful. And yet the way God sustains us is through our heart, through our knowledge, through what we've learned about him. And so these trials, they seem so overwhelming because our view of God is so small. Because we haven't taken time to think and study to get to know him. It's not that God is small, it's that our view of God is small. So how do you prepare for those difficult times? You think hard about God. Now, I don't know if you've been to our discovery class. Hopefully you have. If you haven't, repent and go in January. Um, But if I told you what it was, I mean, I'm just going to tell you. So what we do in discovery class is for six consecutive Wednesday evenings, we spend two hours thinking hard thoughts about doctrine and theology. You know, I don't think a lot of people are going to go to that. You should keep that quiet, right? Because a lot of people are like, yeah, I don't think I want to sit two hours. I haven't sat two hours and studied in a long time is what most of us are thinking. Yep, that's what we do. No apologies. We sit here and we teach hard doctrine. Hard to stretch your mind, blow your mind. You won't get it because I don't get it because nobody gets it all. We're going to work at it hard, though, for two hours for six consecutive weeks. You know what? People keep coming back. Been doing it for 12 years. People keep coming back. They don't just come the first time. They keep coming. And it's not like there's some great prize at the end. There's like a high V dinner at the end. You know what I mean? It's not like everybody's sticking around for the high V dinner. You know? Well, why is that? Why is it that people say that their relationship with God is growing after sitting in a doctrine class? Well, here's why. Because when you think hard about God, when you think hard about doctrine and theology, it's like a log. You just put another log in the fire. And it might take a little while for that log to catch, or it might catch immediately. Who knows? But just putting another log on. When you read hard books that are a little bit over your head, you're putting another log on. When you sit through a class in women's or men's study, or get in a small group where you're studying something, you're just putting another log on. 
When you get up in the morning and you take notes and you write out verses and you memorize them and you meditate on them, you're putting a log on. And that fire keeps going. Now, if you stop doing that, if you stop memorizing and meditating and sitting in the classes and reading the hard books, then you're pulling logs off and pretty soon your fire goes out. And you go, well, what happened? Well, you stopped loving God with your mind. Love them with your heart, love them with your soul, love them with your mind, and love them with your strength. You ever get to a night and you think, I am so tired, I need two nights sleep. One night's sleep is not going to do it. And yet, the next morning you wake up and you're like, I feel pretty good. I got all this energy, what am I going to spend it on? I am an ultra morning person, which means I go to bed early. My uh, 17-year-old walked in the other night, and as a little after 10, and Christine and I were up in the kitchen still doing things. He's like, whoa, past your bedtime. You know, <laughs> he likes reversing roles like he's looking out for us. Past your bedtime, old people. And I'm like, yeah, 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 I get it. But the next morning you wake up and you got this energy. Now, what are you going to spend it on? God says, love him with your strength. I don't think I've shared this before with you. It's still processing it in my head. But, but my dad, a couple years ago, was diagnosed with dementia. And... Um, I have a lot to learn, and I'm still processing through it, and so I'll share more as I figure things out. But here's one thing that I've been thinking about, is that he loved his job, he loved his career, he loved what he did, and he he was good at it. And he uh, delayed, put off retirement for a number of years, could have easily retired earlier, but chose not to. And he shared with me that I'm saving it up, I'm saving up the time and the resources and all of that to spend later on things I want to do. Well, in his 70th year, the year he could have retired, he got uh, a very aggressive case of dementia. And although he is still alive, you know the effects dementia has on a person. And it's had its full ravaging effects on him. And so he saved up strength, but now can't use it on the things he wanted. So one thing I've tried to learn from that to apply to my life is that I don't want to look to tomorrow or next week or next month or next year to start something. I want to spend my strength serving God now, today. Because I don't know how long I have. And neither do you. So don't save up thinking someday you'll serve God, you'll spend your strength on God. Spend it now. Now, of course, this doesn't say... Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It says love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. In other words, take all your poker chips and put them in the middle and say, I'm all in. It doesn't mean that all you can ever think about or ever do is is serve at church. But what it does mean is that whatever I do and how I do it, it is with God in the center. I'm not holding anything back. Yes, I love sports, you might say. Yes, I love my family. Yes, I love Uh, hunting. Yes, I love golf. Yes, I love shopping. Yes, I love, make your list, whatever it is. Yes, I love all those things, but I love God far more. Wouldn't it be great just on your tombstone? A great way to end your life is to say, she loved God. He loved God. Verse 31 The second is this, Jesus says, so love God, all your mind, soul, and strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Whoa, 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 do you catch that? They asked for the greatest commandment, singular. What about that is so hard for Jesus to get? He gives them two commandments. No, we asked for one. Well, you got two. Why? 
Why, Jesus? Why two? Well, because they're so connected that you can't separate them. You can't talk with one without the other. Where you love God, Jesus says, you will love other people. It is inextricably linked. Where you love God, you'll love your neighbor. Where you love God, you'll love your enemy. Where you love God, you'll love people who hurt you and people that are annoying to you and people that are difficult for you. When you love God, you'll love people who sin against you. You'll love other people. John makes this super clear in 1 John 4. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. So, time out. John's saying that you can claim to love God, but if you don't love people, even difficult, annoying, hard to work with people, then you're a liar. You don't really love God. Okay, keep going. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Who's the he? Well, I think it's Jesus because I think you'll recognize this command. And he, Jesus, has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Well, that's the greatest commandment. Love God and love others. Well, how do I love my neighbor? That's the next question. Well, love your neighbor, Jesus says, as yourself. Jesus starts with self-love. He says, all of you want the best for yourself. All of you want to be happy. Without exception, everyone here wants to be happy. Everyone here wants to have food and clothing and a place to live and all the necessities of life. You want meaningful work. You want significant relationships. Everybody here wants happiness. They want to minimize pain and increase happiness. So Jesus starts with self-love, and he says, that's not wrong. It's not wrong to want to be fed and clothed. It's not wrong to want to have good work and to, to be able to take care of yourself and have significant people in your life. None of that's wrong. But then here's the punchline. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. What's the key word in that? It's a little tiny word called as. As is the key word. Even though it's little, it's the key word. If I was Dave, I would say that's a big as, but I'm not him, so I won't. <laughs> and what it means is this, is that when you're hungry, or your neighbor's hungry, pursue food for him or her like you would for yourself. And when your neighbor needs clothing, pursue clothing for him or her like you would yourself. And when you're neighbor needs meaningful work and your neighbor wants to get good grades and your neighbor wants to succeed in life and be happy in life, pursue your neighbor's happiness as you would yourself with all the energy and all the creativity and all the determination and all the perseverance. Pursue your neighbor's happiness as you would yourself. That's the golden rule, right? That Jesus also said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. John Piper says, make yourself seeking the measure of yourself giving. The way you seek happiness for yourself, make that the measure of how you give yourselves to others that they might find happiness. Now at the end, after Jesus has taught all this, the scribe has an interesting response. First he says, uh, well said, Jesus. I'm sure Jesus is like, wow, I passed the test, thank goodness. I got a compliment. Well said, teacher. You're right. The Lord our God, he says, is one. 
and to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, he says is more important than burnt offering and sacrifices. Here is a teacher of the law who's getting it. And Jesus looks at him and says, you are close to the kingdom. Wow, that's not what I'd want to hear. You know, clothes, that's good, and horseshoes and hand grenades, but not heaven. And so, so what do you do with that? Close to the kingdom. You're not in the kingdom. Why not? Well, I think it's something that we get confused pretty easily with. Church people especially. As we start thinking that a Christian is somebody who knows the right answers. You know? And so, so we think we're doing well or far from God based on if we can raise our hand and answer the Bible trivia. Or if we've got the right answers about who Jesus is or what the Bible teaches. That's not what makes a Christian. So this guy's got some right answers but he hasn't trusted in Jesus. See, what makes a person a Christian is to be able to look at their own heart and see their own sin and their own depravity and to turn from their sin and cling to Jesus, that his death is the only hope that they have in this world and the next. Cling to Jesus. It is his payment for our sin, his substitute for what we deserve. That is what makes a Christian. That's somebody who just get the answers to questions right. As the worship team comes back to lead us in singing, would you pray with me? Father, we need to do some self-surgery. We need to look at our own heart. And we ask that you would peel back the layers of our lives so that we could get an honest account of what's happening there. Who do we love? What are we loving, God? Let us see it. When I see what I love, I just have to automatically start by asking forgiveness for loving superficial things more than I love Christ. I pray that you would forgive all of us, Lord, for spending our heart and soul and mind and strength on things that don't ever satisfy on things that are not worthy of our love and our devotion. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the glory, the grace, the beauty, the wonder of Jesus, that our hearts might respond in love. It's in his name we pray. Amen.